You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew The Stand book review. Brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy with ExpressVPN. I'm Christina Lomangino, and I'll be joined again shortly by my amazing panel of guests to help me continue to break down this epic Stephen King novel. If you missed our first episode, we are reviewing the novel in three podcasts, one for each section of the book. So make sure you go back and take a look at our review on book one, Captain Trips. Today we'll be covering book two, On the Border. As we mentioned last time, don't worry if you've never read the book, you don't need to be following along. This can be a fun way for you to learn interesting facts, plot points you never knew, or just flesh out the characters you love a little more. However, it is important you know in each cast, while we are roughly covering one section at a time, we'll pull information in from later in the novel, talk about the 94 adaptation, and the most recent 2020 CBS All Access adaptation. In this podcast, all of our panel guests were at different locations. It was rough timing and schedule-wise to get this to work out, and this was something that worked for everyone, so we really wanted everyone to be able to be here. However, the sound quality is not that great. Even I wasn't on location. I had a headset on where I couldn't hear myself. I might be shouting a little into the mic. I truly apologize for that, but we hope the content is worth it, and we promise for our third and final review, we should be back to a better format of audio quality. I also forgot to mention... One of our panel guests lives in an apartment complex and their neighbor decided to start construction right in the middle of this. We really got lucky for this. <laughs> and by lucky, I mean a lot of unfortunate circumstances. But we still had a lot of fun with book two on the border, so we hope that you will as well. In book two on the border, we come to the aftermath of the outbreak of Captain Trips, where a small number of survivors begin to find one another and band together. They all experience recurring dreams of two kinds. One, a frightening dark man, and another, a benevolent old woman who tells them to come find her in Nebraska. The woman's name is Mother Abigail, and she believes God has given her a mission to assemble all the survivors in Boulder to prepare for a confrontation. Meanwhile, across the Rockies in Las Vegas, a demonic entity known as Randall Flagg is assembling a faction of his own, and he intends to destroy all who oppose him and take over the world. This time, we'll take a closer look at Nick and Tom, Larry, Nadine, and Joe, the trash can man and kid, and of course, the polar opposites of Mother Abigail and Randall Flagg. With that, I'm happy to welcome back our three guests who will continue to help me break down this stand. Welcome back, Kirk, Brian, and Michelle. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. I can't believe. Thank you all for coming back after our two and a half hour long (laughs) recording last time. No problem. Hopefully today's only two hours. (laughs) Uh, We got into some really great stuff last time. We did miss some of our big character groupings. So we'll start off just covering them. One of them, you know, a real favorite of mine, we're talking about Nick and Tom. And in the 2020 adaptation, we didn't get to see a lot of them. In the books, we see that Nick is a deaf man who is mugged in the small town of Shoyo, Arkansas, and locked up by Sheriff John Baker. Though after learning his story, Baker comes to like Nick and arrests his attackers. Then the town starts to come down sick, including the sheriff, and he deputizes Nick to help him out with the jail. When the sheriff doesn't show up the next day, Dr. Soames tells Nick he died, and Nick finds Baker's wife, Janie, also sick. 
He tries to care for her until she dies and maintain the sick prisoners amongst a town slowly becoming desolate. He finally releases the only surviving prisoner and is attacked once more by Ray Booth. He almost dies of an infection, but survives and rides out of town where he finds Tom and they partner up. So thoughts about Nick and Tom. <laughs> Personally, I really like Nick and Tom's relationship. I think that there's a lot more development that's done in the book. Obviously, you have the opportunity to do that in the book uh, setting versus, you know, on a TV show. But I think they have a really nice complementary juxtaposition, if you will, between somebody that is has some challenges mentally versus someone that has challenges physically. Is an interesting pairing, if you will, between how to deal with the world and especially where they are at this point with, with Captain Tripps coming in and affecting everybody. Just how to you know navigate that? How do you learn to deal with that and and live new life when you might not be able to communicate as well in one way, shape, or form? So I, I really, really like their relationship. Yeah, you know, um, Brian, it kind of reminded me of almost like those buddy movies, you know, that you see in movies, they get these two guys, usually it's two guys, but, and they just have, I guess they're two girls in the case of Thelma and Louise, but they have this great chemistry, you know, on screen, or in this case, in the book, it just really comes across that they get along, they compliment, they compliment each other. So yeah, I agree. I think it was a good, it's probably one of my, those two characters and their scenes are probably one of my favorites. In fact, the scene where the two of them kind of run into Julius by far one of my favorite scenes in the book and also in the 2020 series. I was able to picture so clearly reading the book when Nick rides into town and Tom has all of the mannequins set up everywhere in the streets because he doesn't want to feel alone. You know, the whole town is emptied out. I just love everything that goes on between them. I know that it was really difficult creating these characters. And we talked about that in discussing the CBS adaptation that Clearly, it could be very problematic. How do you depict this accurately? And King's writing it quite a long time ago, so he doesn't get everything right for the current time frame. Uh, but looking back on it, I really commend him for adding all of these characters to his books and doing what I thought was a really great job with fleshing them out, making them feel real. I really love the scene where they get caught in the tornado. The 94 didn't do that, right? Yeah, it's funny in that because I um, remember in that I guess you're in a barn, right? And there's. And I remember last time that we chatted about book one, we compared the manifestations of Dracula versus the manifestations of Flag. Both of them have person, wolf. Um, one has a bird, one has a bat. And then the last thing that I thought was wind or wind or fog in the case of Dracula, but I couldn't think what it was in the case of the stand. But I just realized, I just remembered that tornado that came through and, and they were talking about this has got to be a bigger force We've never seen a tornado like this before. And so maybe that could be the equivalent. You know, it's funny that they paralleled those two books, those two characters in, the, in those two books kind of parallel each other. Yeah, those. and I had forgotten when you were talking about that. It's also a scene where he does this great thing we discussed about the sensory aspects. Yeah. There's a clip in there when he says, a horrible darkness was coming out of the West. It was not a cold, more like a total absence of light. Mm -hmm. At its summits, the very clouds seemed to be fleeing from it, as if it possessed some mysterious power of repulsion. The blackness reduced his senses to touch and smell. Neither of them were comforting, and he could feel the constant vibration of the boards beneath his feet, and the smell was death. So mm -hmm. he's really describing it from this sensory aspect of 
you know, all the things Nick's experiencing, even though he can't hear what Tom is hearing. Yeah, you know, we totally, uh, I totally forgot about that part, that description, but that's not far off from um, Dracula. I know you read Dracula, Brian, that, you know, he comes in this big, heavy fog, you know, darkness, and it's very, very similar. It was kind of surprising to me to put those two in parallel to find out there was so many similarities between those two characters. I wonder if King sort of borrowed that from, I don't think it's an accident that he would be that close. I'm sure he read Dracula somewhere. I mean, when was Dracula written? Probably 1848 or something like that, or maybe earlier. Yeah, I, I think he did it on purpose. I think you can kind of view Flag as some as kind of like a attention vampire or energy vampire, if you will, in some form. Not like your traditional vampire like Dracula is, but just being able to get more energy and life and power based on everyone's adoration of him. So I think you're right, Kirk. I think it's a very pointed and yet also purposeful comparison between the two of them that Stephen King did. I think it was done purposely so that you can kind of make those analogies and and understand what King's trying to say without him overly beating you over the head with like, hey, this is my version of Dracula. Like I mentioned before, this is the first time I've read any King. And I've stayed away from horror just because I pictured it, I think the way Michelle described it last time, as slasher films. And, you know, I don't really have much appetite for slasher kind of movies, so I thought they were all like that. Um, but, you know, it's got to be Dracula has to be one of the first sort of horror genre in the horror genre, because I don't remember the exact year, but I would be surprised if it was any um, later than 1850. I'm not sure how many other horror type stories were written back in that time. But if you guys haven't had a chance to read it and you do like horror, I would really suggest taking a look at that. Read it at night. <laughs> So, Michelle, what did you think of Rob Lowe as Nick Andros? He did such a good job. I was really surprised. I love everything about Nick. He's just one of those characters that we talk about. There's no going um, either way for him. He's intrinsically good. He's dynamic. He's layered. But it's so rare that you see characters with deficits used in films, in stories, in such a big way. And I love that King gave him and Tom a chance. And they made their relationship so beautiful together. And I think what I was missing from the 2020 is a lot of Nick's background where, like you said, you always can tell he is intrinsically a force of good. He's probably not going to be tempted to the other side, but he does have a lot of humanity. He writes his life story for Sheriff Baker so that he can understand where he comes from. There's been a lot of struggle And I really like his relationship with Baker's wife, Janie, as she is dying, uh, really. And he stays with her to the very end, promises to to put her in the dress once she passes away. I tell Jay this a lot. She makes a quote there that people pull out all these quotes about the stand from the book that represents what King's talking about. But they often overlook this one. And I think it's the best one. Mm -hmm. Janie says, love is what moves the world, I've always thought. It is the only thing which allows men and women to stand in a world where gravity always seems to want to pull them down, bring them low, make them crawl. And I couldn't figure out why that stuck with me so much, but it resonates in a lot of the Nick and Tom interactions. They really do develop this love for each other. After going through the tornado experience, Nick is thinking to himself, I really hope we find another survivor because I have no way to thank him for saving my life. I have no way to even tell him what my name is. And they become so close. They go through so much together. So I think that's why it's really great once they finally meet up with Ralph Brentner 
And I think that's the interaction you don't quite get in the 2020 series because Ralph coming in and being that link is a really great role for him. Does um, King in any of his other works have characters like that with disabilities or is it, it seems like it's mostly in this book? Because it seems like it plays a major role here. I mean, they're definitely sympathetic characters, forces for good. I think probably both of them. So I really actually wondered if he saw the disability as sort of something that evokes sympathy and therefore good people. But then if you look at Trashcan, he's got a big giant disability and he doesn't evoke that same sort of attachment, I guess, or whatever you would draw. Yeah, I like that he doesn't, in my mind at least, tip over into these tropes. And I know that some people have a problem with it, but it's not as though Tom has superhuman abilities or Nick because of their differing abilities. It's just a part of who they are. It's just a part of their characters. Even when we get into later, and I know I'm jumping a bit, but uh, the thing people take issue with with Tom is the hypnotizing piece of it. And they're saying, you know, they take advantage of him and basically he's portrayed as very childlike and sort of this innocence. But I feel if you read it a little bit closer, Nick is saying that Tom has actually been doing this to himself for a long time. It's a form of self-hypnosis that he puts himself under in order to make connections between things. And I really don't see it as falling into a trope. Uh, I think that he does a really good job writing them. I'm trying to think, I know he portrays a lot of characters who have been through abuse and trauma in other books, but that's really the main thing that's standing out to me right now. I just got finished with reading Dolores Claiborne for the first time, and there is a lot of crazy trauma stuff in there. <laughs> well, a lot of the characters, most of the characters in this book, you know, are were traumatized. I mean, if you look at Trashcan, if you look at um, Nick, if you look at Harold, you know, and even, well, Franny, if you look at the relationship she had with her mm-hmm. mom, you know, the whole parlor thing. So there's a lot of that going on there. There are, there are very few characters, I think, in the book that didn't experience it one side or the other. And I think even, do we know anything about Lloyd? I kind of have that in the back of my head that he also described some sort of trauma he went through as a young kid. He describes the trauma of being in the jail cell alone and it's making him think of a rabbit that he had when he was younger, who he forgot about. Oh, and right. That's right. The rabbit wound up in his extremity of hunger, eating his own paws. And Lloyd is thinking about that when he's in the cell being driven to eat his cellmate to survive. And man, if there's a better description of a traumatic experience, you're really put in his position that you actually feel bad for Lloyd. All these characters, you get to know their background a little bit more. I thought that way about Trash Can because when, you know, I'm not sure, are we... did we, did we cover him last time? Or are we going to cover him this time? We did a little bit about him, but we're going to talk about him with the kid this time because we didn't get to that. Okay, cool. Then I'll just hold this until then. Yeah, that's a pretty crazy side story that's actually unique to the extended version. I know the kids in the original, but all of those traumatic scenes were cut from the original put back into the extended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but let's talk about uh, another character you guys brought up, Nick and Tom meet Julie. Julie is interesting, I think, in every version, book 94, 2020. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have a, a favorite version of her? Actually, I kind of like the 2020 version of her in the in the TV series. She was kind of like, well, we saw both sides of her. We, I mean, she was crazy both times, but she was, when, you know, when they ran across her in 
for some reason it's in my head from the 2020 it's like in some warehouse somewhere but apparently i mean i guess if i recall right in the book i think it was in a drugstore or mm-hmm. something like that but then in the 2020 series wasn't it somewhere else i some warehouse somewhere there was furniture or i don't i don't i didn't you know didn't stick straight into my memory but i kind of recall that but yeah i thought she was both you know she was a character in both cases yeah they, Actually, they- cut from the 2020 the Pepto-Bismol scene and that was my favorite part because I thought it really made Julie out to be such a monster yeah it's poison although she didn't know exactly what Tom's background was do you know what I mean she didn't know that there was something specific about medicine and Tom and his dad if I remember right that um, she didn't know all that when she threw out the Pepto-Bismol yeah, if it can kill Remember the rats, when, it can kill Tom's you dad, too. When Tom's dad was trying to keep him away from, you know, eating poison around the house. I imagine stuff he found under the sink. Mm-hmm. So he told you, if you drink this stuff, you're going to die. And then Tom sort of transferred that over to Pepto Bismo. And so, I mean, I'm not in a good position to defend Julia on anything, but I mean, she didn't really know about that when she threw that out there. Christina, I think I actually liked Julie in the book better. Mm. Um, because I think there's a little bit more character development, obviously, because you can in the book. I'm probably going to keep saying that the entire this cast and next cast. But I think she wasn't as tropey. In the 2020 version, Kurt, I, I agree with you. I found her more comical, where it was probably played up a little bit for slight comic relief, tension relief, if you will, but also very stereotypical. And and like I said, tropey. I think one of my problems with with the the series, and I know we've we've all been mentioning it ever ever since we started talking about the show. There just wasn't a lot of time given, so you had to cut some things out. Obviously, they hit a lot of the the main story beats that were necessary for to progressing the story in in twenty twenty specifically. It made everybody sacrifice what your what the good parts of the story in the book that's written that really kind of helps define each of the character. I, I myself was also saddened that the Pepso, Pepto-Bismol section was taken out of the 2020 version. I get why time constraints and all that kind of good fun stuff, but I think it was a big disservice to her character overall. So yeah, I like I like Julie's character from the book better. Well, and I, I really liked Shawnee Smith in the 94. She captured something of that real unhinged. Nothing she's doing is so crazy until she gets the gun out, obviously. And yet there's this constant low-grade fear that anything could happen with her. And I know we talked about it in the TV review, um, how you have true evil, of course, and these forces like with Randall Flagg. But then you also just have bad people that you know if you run across them like Nick and Tom encounter somebody like Julie... Nick knows pretty much right away, we don't need this. This is going to ruin the the delicate bond we're forging here and our ability to survive. She's going to get in the middle of that because she doesn't care about anybody but herself. And she becomes rather frightening to me. I I thought Shawnee did a good job of that, though, of course, the book is able to go further always than the adaptations can. We also have to talk about uh, two other areas, Stu's party and Larry's party. So first... Let's talk Stu's party, where they start to gather more people. They are first to get to a safe zone, you know, to start up the Boulder Free Zone. They hear Ralph Brentner's radio transmissions. The survivor's party is growing. But we see a couple of things first. Their group is trying to take medication to keep the dreams at bay, to help them sleep better. Uh, although some of them, including Franny, are not taking it. She's worried about the baby. They meet up with a couple other people, um, including 
Mark, who they try to perform an appendectomy on, but they wind up losing him, of course, because none of them are doctors and they have no idea what they're doing. That was pretty scary. Uh, Franny is beginning to write a lot of things in her diary about Harold. We're setting up that whole plot when he's going to come across and find her writings. And really in the book, this is the crux, I think, of Harold's tipping point when he finds out what Franny's been writing and, and he keeps that a secret for a while. And then finally, they come across the zoo, which we did see a version of in the 2020. In the book, it's four men holding eight women captive as sex slaves. And an ambush leads to a gun battle where the remaining women join the party with Stu and everyone else. And this is where we meet Dana Jurgens, but also Susan Stern, who is not in the 2020. So that's a lot of stuff that I just flew through. Any thoughts on the, the plot lines going on with Stu's party? I think for me, Harold with Franny's diary kind of gives you an insight into Harold's character and that the creep factor that's going to be coming in later really kind of well as one of those points along a character's journey helps to get him to the point where he needs to kind of break, if you will, because he's loved her for how long or has liked her for how long. And all of a sudden he can see that she doesn't feel that same way. feels more of like a creep. It's a very telling aspect. And I, while the other parts of the, the story was good, it's like that one really kind of stood out to me for him of like a very distinct milestone in his journey. And she's writing some pretty awful things about him in there. As you would in a diary, you're never expecting somebody to read it. But when she thinks back later and she finds out he has read it and she's going, why did I write all this stuff in there about him? And you can imagine being the person to read that just feeling shattered. This is what people think of me. Uh, I think they do a much better job in the books of making you feel a lot more empathy for Harold and understanding why he's feeling the way he is, how he's brought to a certain point and questioning if he could be redeemed, especially with the 2020. I don't feel that quite as much. I didn't get a lot of redemption arc from him in the 2020 uh, TV series. You kind of knew it was coming just because you kind of need some of that for, for characters like Carol. But you're right. There was much more empathy from him because of that point. Also, like we're going to get into later talking about the kid and Trashcan, you got a lot more empathy for Trashcan because of his interactions with the kid than you did in either one of the, the TV series. So I think it was, like I said, it's a, it's a very poignant point and very definitely needed to understand his character and the motivations for what he does later. I think it was necessary because last time we were talking about Kirk was entertaining the idea, how much of this is abnormal for a teenage kid where do we draw the line with him? Could he have been better depending on his influence, how he grew up? And this was necessary for him to develop into who he turned into. It was definitely a huge turning point. Up until then, he was kind of ambiguous. We didn't know where he was going. After this, it was, it was clear and it set him down the path. Michelle, random medical question that I don't know if you'll know the answer to, but I was thinking this while reading it. Do you know how long time frame wise you can go once your appendix uh, sort of ruptures before it kills you? An hour or two. Because that was pretty gruesome. You're going to yeah. get septicemia pretty quickly. Full-blown organ failure within a few hours. It's, it'll, it would be bad. It wasn't that fast, right? They had time to go into town and get some tools and come back. Yeah, Stu, actually, they, they started the surgery. Nobody else wanted to do it. He didn't really either, but he, he finally agreed. And he had gotten to the point where he thought he found the appendix when um, the girlfriend, I forget her name, she's telling him, forget it, uh, Perian 
forget it, he's he's gone. But the whole buildup to that, to me, was so frightening, bringing it home in a realistic way that Franny's thinking in her head the whole time, if something as simple as appendicitis that we could solve in the old world, you go, you get the surgery, you're better, um, is so deadly potentially here. What's going to happen with my baby? What if something goes wrong with the pregnancy? Who's going to deliver the child? And it it just leads you to this whole other area that they hadn't really considered yet. So I like the the side story for bringing that home and, and making the fear even more real that it's not just Captain Trips they need to be worried about. Yeah, it's just right. I mean, it's like what we're going through right now. If you are a person, you just happen to have a heart attack. You may not be able to get in the emergency room because emergency rooms full of people that have problems with COVID, you know, so. I want to jump over to the other party because we did talk about Larry last time, but we didn't get a chance to talk about Nadine. It's in these areas mm-hmm. where he meets Nadine after Joe first tries attacking him with a knife. Larry is following Harold's signs and chocolate bar wrappers using his mm-hmm detective skills to find clues and guide the group. Larry becomes attracted to Nadine, but she keeps him at bay. She is saving herself. We don't know what for yet. We'll find out later for Flag. And thus, when they meet up with some more people, including Lucy Swan, Larry eventually starts a relationship with her. We learn about Nadine's complicated feelings towards Flag, and we get a couple more people joining up, including Judge Ferris, who we'll get a lot more with as far as his relationship with Larry. So I guess let's start out with Nadine. I mean, this is a, a whole very complicated story and character, uh, but any thoughts about her and I guess uh, her and Joe, because we get a lot with Joe in these early chapters? Well, you know, what's funny is Nadine comes across as very kind and I'm going to say moral. I've got that sense, but I'm trying to think of the example I mean, she's very kind to, well, Joe. I mean, she takes him under her wing to take care of him. And she seemed like she was very gentle and kind with Larry when they first, you know, meet up. I'm kind of wondering, I mean, other than the Ouija board incident, had she been visited by Flag? Is she aware of why she's holding her virginity at this point? Or does she just have a sense that she wants to stay a virgin? They bring up a couple of scenes of when she was younger Um, And she had, let's say, near experiences with other men where it came close to she thought she might sleep with them and she wound up Mm -hmm. not. And initially there was always just something telling her not to, to wait. And she got the sense that if she did, whatever that thing was would be ruined. But Flag did come to her at a pretty young age and tell her. And ever since then, she sort of had these mixed feelings. She is interested in him. She is attracted to him. She She's intrigued by what he represents, but she also is a little bit repulsed even to start off with. So they make it a very complicated feeling. And when she gets to the point of meeting Larry, I think she knows this is a last moment where she could have something different. And if she doesn't with Larry, she's pretty much saying, I know I'm going to belong to Flag. I mean, there was that scene in the book where She's being chased by some guy across some field or something. And she says, well, if he would have caught me, I probably would have gone along with it. Some comment like that, you know, um, that's why I was trying to figure out if she actually knew who this flag person was at that point or if she just had some other feeling. I couldn't quite nail that down from but I got out of the book anyway. I go back and forth with with Nadine's character as we're comparing with all the versions that we've seen. Right. The book obviously brings the Ouija board in. I think it's during college, if I remember correctly, for Nadine. And while in the 2020 version, 
they brought that story point a lot earlier, maybe mm-hmm. like uh, preteen or teenage years. I struggle a little bit with kind of the reality of the situation. Uh, if I was in dating shoes, what would compel me in either one of the aspects to to kind of wait for somebody like that? Right. I would think, yeah, she was had some inklings earlier in the book, but I don't think the college time frame was the right one, if you will, to introduce that story point from an age perspective. And please, ladies, feel free to tell me if I'm totally off base here. I, I think it was a little late in somebody's development because you had, in college, you kind of sure you're still kind of learning yourself being outside of you know your parents' house and on your own for the first time and trying to figure out what you want to be as a person. But you kind of you kind of know who you are to some degree. You kind of have a trajectory planned out. So it seemed a little off for me that that was in that point in her life. But on also on the other hand, if it's too early, it could be a total like creep fest and completely mess you up so much that it's not enticing to wait for the other person. I'm coming down to, I like that what the, the 2020 version did is they brought that story point earlier in Nadine's life. I'm not sure if the time frame was still the right one. So I'm kind of struggling with the whole utilizing of the, the Ouija board as the, the reason or the emphasis to for mating to wait in general. I'm not sure if it was the right one. And again, I, like I said earlier, I know you have to bring in certain story points to, to propel the story over uh, the course of a series. Um, so I'm glad they brought it in. I'm just struggling if it was the right story element to get to the point of what uh, Stephen King was looking for. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think the, the whole Ouija board thing has always been a weird uh, sort of what Stephen King doing. Is this a horror movie? Uh, if it was through a Ouija board, would she really be uh, so intrigued about this idea of being his bride? I think I'd be terrified. But what works less for me is she does have such a strong connection to this part of her humanity and goodness through the kids she teaches um, through caring for them and wanting to see them be able to do well. And that winds up getting transferred to Joe when she finds him to the point that he is essentially feral the way that King describes him when she first finds him. She saves his life because he has an infection. His whole family is dead and begins taking care of him despite the fact that he can't really communicate verbally. He tries to kill Larry because he doesn't want anyone taking any of Nadine's time or attention and is very worried about that. She is so good with him. I I think they do a good job in the books describing later that it's not just the goodness she feels. It's the fact that Joe needed her. And it's the fact that when Larry is still a little bit lost and hasn't found himself, he needs her. And when they stop needing her so much, She's not quite as interested. I wish they'd almost played a little bit more with that because it's more complicated and it does explain her and why she would be drawn to flag so much. Yeah, you know, at that part of the book, when I was reading through it, I thought that Nadine was a, a good character. You know, I didn't know, you know, what was coming up ahead of time because she was so, um, you know, kind to Joe and she was just seemed like she was a a gentle and kind person towards Larry and sort of understanding. And then that point where she's kind of faced with a situation that Joe doesn't want to go with him. And, and Larry, I think is saying, well, let's just leave him, you know, or, and she's like, no, he'll die if I just leave him. And so she, that's where the moral part comes out. You know, she, I don't know if that's exactly the way the scene played out, but in my memory, it was something like that where she had somebody's life in her hands and made the decision to preserve that person's life. 
And I believe it was Joe. Isn't that right? Does somebody remember the book better than me? Yeah. And in fact, she says a couple of times that killing in this world where there's already been so much death would be the worst thing. And even allowing somebody to go off knowing they would probably die is just an unforgivable sin. And I think that's what makes it so uh, intense when she finally aids in Harold's death later is that she has committed that sin that she said would be crossing the very last line. Mm -hmm. And we saw a parallel to that with Tom and Nick, right, where Nick was faced with a situation of, you know, Tom was kind of a burden on him and he was faced with a situation of like, well, maybe I'll just leave him behind. But he decided that you know, he couldn't make that choice for the same reason. So, mm. you know, there were, we have like the goodest of good persons, Nick, and we have what turned out to be one of the one of the bad persons, you know, Nadine. But they they come up to the same moral decision and they make the same choice at this time in the book. You know, we don't find out till later that Nadine sort of changes course. This has always been a point for me, Michelle. I'm going to ask you what you think here. Did Nadine ever really have a choice? Was this her destiny? Was she sort of commanded from flag at a young age? Could she have chosen to do something different? No, I think she decided it was her destiny, which I guess means it wasn't at all. I think she told herself it was, and I really agree with you, Brian. I think college is far too late for the situation with the Ouija board to influence a person like it does. I'm wondering, because the book was written almost 30 years ago, if that's a reason for it. I don't think it's long enough because teenage girls are developing faster now and experimenting faster now, but college still seems too late. I think in adolescence, preteen, it's really easy for a girl that age to romanticize something like this and they still kind of have magical thinking. You still want to be special and different regardless of how that presents itself. By college, you would think a girl, a woman has much more concrete thinking, much more better understanding of who they are and what the world actually is. I don't know what Nadine understood about Flag or about these dreams, um, but I think it just made her feel special. And I think in a really, really juvenile, sophomoric type of way, every woman wants their first time to be special or to be different. And I think maybe that's what she was waiting for. I don't think she was evil. And eventually she did become. And I think she sacrificed that for this feeling of being being special, being different. I agree. And I think that's why she freaks out so much. They do such a good job of when she winds up, the groups are really joining up and she's hearing what everybody else has to say about the dreams that most people aren't dreaming of the dark man. She knows she hasn't dreamed of Mother Abigail. She's only dreaming of him. But she's getting more of a realistic sense of how everyone views it, and it terrifies her. And she starts lashing out, telling Larry, I don't dream. I don't get dreams. I haven't had any of that. You can see it's starting to come home for her, I think, for the first time, really, that this is not right, and she has a real fear of it. Uh, again, I think I, I take a little issue later with her readiness to seduce Harold and bring him over to this side and how bad, how quickly that goes was always a bit confusing. I don't think the 94 did an excellent job with it, but uh, once they get past that bump, then you have some interesting things happening, I guess, between her and Harold. We're talking about it. Let's get to one of our first big polls, our, our good poll, because what's happening is they are getting these dreams. The survivors are drawn together and predominantly in this group, they're shared dreams of Mother Abigail telling them to come to Hemingford Home, Nebraska, a place that they see as refuge and a representation of good in the struggle with evil. 
We meet Abby, where she journeys to a nearby farm to get dinner for her guests. She has an encounter with the weasels, which are really flag, and we learn her backstory throughout her entire life. Then Nick, Ralph, Tom, and their group are the first to reach Mother. She becomes their spiritual leader, directing them to Boulder, where they eventually wind up joining up with everyone else. That's Mother Abigail, Ruby D in the 94, who I just have to say up front, I absolutely adore. I, she's always going to be Mother Abigail. I'm sorry, Whoopi Goldberg, it's no contest. <laughs> she was great. I love the way she portrayed it. Um, how old did she say? I'm 94 years old and I still bake my own bread. 108. 108. She was very human, but very not. She was lovable. I don't know. I loved how she was portrayed in 94. It kind of felt like in 2020, they needed a, they're going after big names or recognizable names, if you will, for going after big names sake and not trying to find somebody that did the role justice. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Whitby Goldberg. She was great in Star Trek, Next Generation, you know, and there's her iconic character in Ghost is also great as well. But I, I don't know. I just, I don't, I didn't envision her when I read through the book um, as being Mother Abigail's character. It didn't fit. And even when they tried to make her look older in 2020 than she currently is, didn't look good either. So it's kind of one of those, what are they doing? And you kind of get lost in trying to figure that out versus getting into the story. So I completely agree that Ruby D is a much better actress for the time and for the character. I don't know who they could have brought in for the 2020 without having somebody like <laughs> come back in time or be brought forward in time or be resurrected to come back into it. Maybe Earth the Kit, if she was still around, um, could have done just as good. I know Kirk's going to appreciate that name. I did enough yeah. complaining about her throughout our coverage of this series <laughs> and about how the 2020 basically just cut Mother Abigail almost entirely. So it's it's not all whoopee. The writing was very poor, but I, I thought the biggest thing lacking we talked a lot about how she became the the magical Negro trope and what that meant and the fact that Stephen King tried to avoid that in the book. There was a little bit of it in the 94, but I thought the 2020 fell hard into it because they didn't depict any of Abigail's background, her, her humanity, the life struggle she went through. She became a pure religious prophet figure uh, that we know very little of. And it, Michelle, I think you hit it right on the head there. Ruby D, I felt drawn to her just as a person, not even a spiritual leader. You know, I wanted to come to her house and have dinner and hear her play guitar on the front porch mm -hmm. in a world that was so uncertain and scary. She felt like this home uh, that you wanted to get to where you could feel safe. I just think they did a great job of embodying that. When I was reading the book, I pictured somebody like Cicely Tyson in that role, you know, somebody who who actually was old, you know, and I say was now she probably, I don't know if she was available when they did this or not. I mean, she'd been working up until the last, you know, little bit. She just died recently, but she has some pretty recent work out there. So I don't know if she would have been available for this or not, but I kind of pictured her. I think my problem with Whoopi is that she just, I mean, you picture a 108 year old woman who's kind of lived in Nebraska somewhere as being frail. And Whoopi is far from frail. She's like got a lot to her, you know, a lot of beef, a lot of muscle and all that. And I don't think a 108-year-old would be like that. I don't know. You probably see a lot of older people, Michelle, in your work. And I doubt that any of them have 
sort of the body mass that Whoopi does, do they? What about the spryness? <laughs> the what? The spryness. I mean, she's up and moving around. Now, 2020, they never say she's 100 neat. I think they're specifically steering away from maybe she's not that old. Uh, but for me, it was the voice, too, uh, when she's doing those scenes, did not sound that elderly. Do you think they wanted to change the depiction of her for 2020? Do you think they were trying? Because it was so different. Do you think, like Brian said, they wanted a big name to have a big name? Because I think that did a disservice in so many ways. I mean, we already have preconceived ideas about the type of characters that will be plays because she is so famous because of the things that she has done. Those are inescapable correlations that we make every time you see her. She does bring more of a strength, more of an attitude. There's She can't play meek. She can't play what she would have been in the book. So I'm wondering if that was an intentional choice or if they were just trying to get more viewers. If so, I wish they would have gone harder into it. Have her not be 108. Make her have more attitude. Make her frustrated yep. with the group and Nick for going behind her back. Um, you just needed more. I don't think they took a stance enough one way or the other really this time. You could have you could have brought Whoopi's character from Sister Act, aged her up appropriately, and that would have been a much better person or portrayal of Mother Abigail. Yeah, she doesn't need to be 108 because just, you know, any other character that Whoopi's done, aged up appropriately, and that would have been a perfect casting um, because it's a much different portrayal and more modern, I would think, versus this tropey person that I don't know kind of felt like John Coffey from the Green Mile in the movie you know it's just like yeah okay you you kind of get it but at the same time it's like it did a disservice to the character did a disservice to the story and just wasn't necessary I agree um, I do want to we'll, we'll continue a little bit with Mother Abigail but um, this other big area before we get to, to flag in the dark side is the fact that we are starting to reestablish society in Boulder so as the parties start arriving there, greeted always by mother, uh, we start to see what's unfolding. Larry visits Franny and tells her about following Harold's sign, how he made it all this way. Uh, she's sort of surprised about the way Larry views Harold and thinks he's got it a little wrong, but he's got to find out for himself. And the group begins to reestablish a democratic society. They are trying to clear out all the dead bodies from the area, make it livable, they start to form a committee to govern and rebuild the city. And then we see them deciding to send three spies to the West to see what flag is up to in Vegas. Much the same as the 2020, you have the judge, Dana Jurgens and Tom, who are picked as our spy. Although, as we mentioned, Tom is given instructions in the book under hypnosis of when and how to go, when to return. And I think that uh, a big piece of it in the books that we don't quite get in these versions are Nick's interior thoughts about what society will need. He keeps thinking that the first three things are authority, organization, and politics. They're also going to have to reestablish the law, which is why they're going to make Stu a marshal. And we have a lot of the meeting minutes that Franny is taking in her diary of how things are unfolding. People generally regard this as the boring section so of the great. book. Yes. But what do you guys think I really enjoy? Maybe not the way we're getting it in Franny's diary, but them talking about their struggles and what type of society they're trying to reform. How did you find these parts? Well, I mean, to me, it was, I, I kind of lined up with a sort of, I don't know if you call it boring, but it was kind of one of the slower, slower parts. And I think coming from the diary might have added to that rather than sort of seeing it in action in a dialogue. Because 
I felt that we got closer to that just listening to Glenn and his and his discussions with uh, um, with Stu. You know, when they were talking about, he sits them down. I think I don't know if he opens a bottle of wine. And he says, "Okay, I came out here to, to pick your brain," and he just kind of opens up um, Glenn, and then Glenn sort of pontificates on what he sees. I thought that was a lot interesting, a lot more interesting way to um, receive this information than sort of reading somebody else's diary about it. I got a couple thoughts. I completely agree that having a conversation between Stu and Glenn is a much better avenue to get this across. I completely agree that, yeah, in, in a situation like this or a story like this, you do need to reestablish society in one way, shape, or form. And there's multiple opinions about how to do that. Right, wrong, or indifferent? They're all different ways. But then, you know, they, they chose one. I remember when I was reading the book and I was seeing the diary laid out there, I'm like, okay, when's this end? <laughs> Honestly, can I fast forward through pages? And then I most recently, for our, for our talks here, I've been listening to the audiobook, and I was like, can I fast forward fast enough through this? And then can I can I get a timestamp when this is done? Because in in the audiobook version, it's even worse because it reads every single line like, oh, Franny colon blah blah blah. It's like. <laughs> it is probably the one thing out of all of Stephen King's writing that I've read that I hate the most, honestly, is these diary aspects. Now, I also get it because the diary has played a part in the story earlier from when Harold read Franny's and also Harold's that he's writing down for his manifesto. Um, so I get the kind of idea that Stephen King has to make us feel like we're one of the people in the party of reading through that somebody else's diary in the same way that the characters are so i get it but i think this is actually one of the areas where the 2020 version did it better and i apologize i can't remember the 94 version of this for this specific instance but they did it better than the book where they got the point across that they were reestablished society that they had to deal with all the bodies that they were doing all this stuff to make it another livable town and a livable society regardless of what's happening it was done in a much better way than the book i'll get off my soapbox now no, here I think you're right. Here's my my problem always with this. I don't like the way they do it with Franny's diary. I do think it is tedious how King writes it, where he is so adept in other areas at making these things interesting. It's not until later you find out how critical what you're learning is here. And that's a problem because you can only see it in hindsight is eventually they find out they were trying to restart up democracy because they wanted to be ahead of this. They wanted to figure out how the group was shifting, how they could get a handle on it and have some control over the way things go to try to make a peaceful society that functions properly. We hear a lot of Glenn talking about these things, how they could get on top of it. It is really Glenn's chance to shine because he has an idea as a sociologist, the way things might go and how to influence events. Later, we learn a big point of what King is coming to with this book is that we're in danger of, quote unquote, starting it all up again. Not only is everything lying around, waiting to be picked up, the weapons, the things that will culminate in our main showdown with Vegas and the fact that Trash will find a nuclear bomb, but the way we interact as people and that we could just go back to the same old crap, which did it really work for us or is it going to mean the circle opens, as Jay and I said in the last. And so is reestablishing the same old democracy and the way things run a factor in what makes it not work later on? Should we have really tried to do something different? I think it's a question they bring up uh, that we don't think about in that way, maybe till the very end. Another thing that he brings into it that I would like 
your thoughts on. I don't know if this was a product of his time or King Paranoia, but technology is evil, essentially. He thinks that this group, their main focus is going to be getting technology back up and running, getting the lights back on, the power working. That's what everyone wants. But again, we'll slip back into the old ways and it will wind up being a danger to us. So I guess, do you agree with his thoughts about humanity? Are, are we able to escape ourselves? Is all of that necessarily bad? Would we just fall back into it? So I think some of it, is, like you said, is King's paranoia. He did a book called Cell, which is all about cell phones and cell phone towers hijacking people's brains. So it is partially, I'd say a large partially of his paranoia with technology. But I think no matter what you do in terms of restarting a society, you always will have the uh, the benefit of hindsight, but not the benefit of foreshadowing. And what I mean by that is that people will always try to push the boundaries. So you'll know what boundaries have been pushed before and what have failed before, but you don't know how what fix you're going to try to put in today is going to fail later. I, I have never come across a true utopia in whatever modern day society you try to put in place or any book or movie that doesn't have some sort of individual, group of individuals, et cetera, trying to push the boundary. It's a storyline idea because it happens in normal society. To geek out for one half a second as a gas utility worker, uh, the city of New Orleans, uh, after Hurricane Katrina came through and wiped out basically everything, they have the opportunity to uh, redo their entire gas infrastructure grid. What are the things that we, if we had the opportunity, which we do, to do it all over again, how would we make it safer? And they implemented a lot of things that they felt at the time was making it safer. However, now that we've been through a couple of years and, and we've seen what things have uh, progressed, they are rethinking some of their decisions that they put in place from a cost perspective and a feasibility perspective. For example, um, if you have a fire and you work for a gas utility, you have fire valves that you operate that can shut off sections of the gas grid to make sure that the natural gas doesn't fuel the fire. Those valves are in certain locations to minimize the amount of customers that are off. You know, when you do shut off the gas. Uh, New Orleans thought it'd be a great idea to put one on every street corner. So you could basically section off one block versus an entire section. But each valve per regulations means that you need to operate it and maintain it. So now they have four times, five times, maybe even 10 times the amount of valves that they had originally. So all their operating costs are going higher. So while they are putting that stuff in place from a safety perspective and you know, trying to make sure that that's a really great idea based on things that they have learned, you didn't necessarily have the foresight of like, oh, this is all the extra costs you're going to have coming up because of that. Um, so you said it's just one small example. So I think, like I said, you have the benefit of, of uh, history, but you don't have the benefit of foresight. So I get trying to create a society where you're eliminating all of the bad stuff, you know, all the guns, the nuclear warheads, the things that could just randomly be picked up. But at the same time, you don't know what that's going to cause. If you try to eliminate all that, maybe it makes it an even worse problem before or later on down the road than if you just kept things the status quo before Captain Trips came in and just kept society as it was because you know how to deal with it as it was instead of you don't know how to deal with it if you put in these massive regulations that eliminate everything that you just were able to pick up. 
Well, and I do agree with King on certain points that people who have heard enough Patreon casts and, you know, Jason doesn't love that I take this stance so often, but I do think we become kind of a victim to technology, a slave to our technology. We forget how to function without it. Uh, you bring up losing power. We talk about this often, the, the storm where we lost power for uh, 12 days in New York and just how utterly lost you are for the first few days that you don't even know what to do with yourself, but then you are forced to live a little bit differently. And it's only by that being taken away that you can actually change. And you're thinking to yourself, some of these things are nice because we don't live that way anymore. We don't engage with those things anymore. I I do think he's right about the dangers of, you know, even if some people are good, if others are bad and those things are lying around and they could get their hands on that, how do you control it? Uh, But it's just a bleak message to say that at base, people are sort of weak and cannot change. And we are always going to be victim to fall into the same cycle over and over again. It's a message that I struggle with in his work here. Um, and I'm not saying he's necessarily right or wrong. That goes back to some very base ideas about humanity. I just don't love that it doesn't give a lot of hope by the end of the book. I think it's funny because he wrote the story so long ago and he didn't know what would become of things like the internet, the smartphones. So it seems like he was prophesizing and so much of it has come true. But also in a story like this, when we're talking about humanity in its most stripped down version. It's not as though technology just fell out of the sky. At the end of the day, it was people that created it and it's the people that decide and determine how to use it. So I get in the story, they felt like they were kind of starting with a clean slate in a way. We have a choice to decide what we're gonna incorporate, what we're not and where we're gonna go with it, but it doesn't change people. And you're still gonna have, even in a, utopian world, you're going to have greed, you're going to have jealousy, you're going to have all of the things that led into the creation of technology and um, the misuse of those things. I understand it would be a nice idea like, hey, if we just don't pick up the guns and don't pick up the bombs and we'll be able to create this, this perfect world, which is just so far from, I think, what the reality of it would be. But I do give him credit for Um, his ability back then to kind of imagine and project the different terrible ways we could use these things and how we have. He he does that a lot in his books. It's pretty amazing that you think it's it's actually 40 something years since he wrote this. And you're like, is he a wizard? Is he a prophet? Because some (laughs) of the stuff he talks about, he is way ahead of his time. And we look at it now, we look at the failings and what he didn't get right. But you think about Mm -hmm. the time he was writing it in and it's pretty incredible. This podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? It's a virtual private network or a secure tunnel between your device and the internet, which protects you from online snooping, interference, and censorship. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. Sometimes when we're searching for things related to this podcast, for instance, we're talking about The Stand, the epic Stephen King novel, there are some things in there we have to look for, such as when they set the nuclear explosion off, could you see that from a certain amount of miles away? I don't really want anyone to know I'm searching for that. That's probably bringing up a lot of red flags and is kind of weird. Yeah, I don't want to be put on a list. 
when we were reviewing the 2020 show, I wanted to look up how easy it is to take apart a nuclear bomb, just like Trash Can Man. But if you start typing that and Googling that, I feel like the government's going to be like, hey, what are you up to? Even some of the weird medical things I have to look up for myself, I don't want to start receiving all sorts of ads and information about that. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter where you get your internet, whether from Verizon, Comcast, or Optimum, any of them. Internet service providers in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet service provider can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. And that's an understatement. I forget I'm using it. I press the button once, and every time I turn my computer back on from sleep, it's automatically working. And I have my mom signed up. Thank God it automatically works, because my mom would never be able to figure it out if it was any other way. That's the hallmark of a good product like this, right? When you forget it's even there. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. But the reason the CKC uses ExpressVPN is because watching shows is ridiculously fast. That's our main reason. We stream all of these television shows. We live our lives through television. That's why we do podcasts about TV. If there is lag or hiccups because of our VPN, we would just turn it off. There's never any buffering or lag. You can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. Mac, Windows, Android, it doesn't matter. So there's no excuse for you to not be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash CKC, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's right. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself. That's expressvpn.com slash CKC. ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy. There's a couple more plot points I want to hit for the free zone real quick before we go to Vegas. And some of them we talked about. So you'll just tell me if you have any other thoughts. I guess the big thing is once this all starts to culminate, Mother Abigail in every version has a feeling she's become prideful and sinned due to her embroilment in being a public figure having people come and her be the greeter. And she sort of lost focus on being the spiritual guide and the message hearing from God. Thus, she stopped hearing from God. So she disappears into the wilderness uh, on a journey of spiritual reconciliation. Meanwhile, we have the events going down in Boulder where Franny finds out that Harold has read her diary. She searches his home and finds his own journal with the manifesto. And things start really heating up. Nadine tries once more to be with Larry, but he chooses Lucy, after which she falls into that relationship we talked about where she she seduces Harold and begins using him as a pawn. And Harold's bitterness turns him into this plan where the two of them construct and then detonate a bomb at the meeting of the Free Zone Committee in an attempt to assassinate all their leadership. The explosion does kill several people, most notably Nick, although the rest of the committee is spared because they find out Mother Abigail has returned right at that moment, weakened and dying from her journey in the wilderness, but with a last message to tell them. And this saves the remaining members who go out to find her. 
She gives them their instructions before dying that Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph are to journey west to take their stand. Fran is upset but relents, and the group sets out. So I've got a quick comment on how uh, Harold steals the diary, only in the sense of, you know me, I'm always doing this comparative literature thing. But there, it's funny because um, there's a story, that Edgar, a short story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote a million years ago called The Purloined Letter. It's essentially a story about this woman that has a letter, I think it was written by somebody else so that she had possession of that then falls into the hands of like one of her ex-lovers or something and he uses it as power over him. So that's been, you know, a book that I probably read when I was in high school. But um, it was funny because at some point in um, The Stand, King actually uses the phrase, the purloined diary. And it plays kind of a similar role. You know, it's got all this information that then once it's transferred to the wrong hands, it gets used against her, against her. And I thought that was an interesting comparison. And also another thing, like where I was wondering if he was maybe influenced by Dracula. I mean, you know, um, Edgar Allan Poe is another one of these, I don't know if you call it horror, but well, maybe. I mean, some of his books are pretty horrific. And I just wondered if he was um, also influenced for this because he actually used the word purloined in the book. And how often do you see anybody using the word purloined or stolen? Not very often. So it was just something that popped in my head when I read through this. Well, and there are sections of his writing there. I did not catch that. That's pretty amazing where the writing is really brilliant. They do showcase a lot of that in the 2020. Um, mm-hmm. And not that the writing itself is good. It's meant to be kind of bad in spots where you you see what Harold's writing in the manifesto. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's becoming so unhinged and you're really kind of copying on to the state that Harold is in and the way King describes all those things are amazing. And I I think, Kirk, you had a little more on some of King's writings and the way he does that throughout. You mean compared to other things or in terms of just his writing style? The writing style, the similes he uses. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was jotting down because I was just intrigued. I thought, you guys, we have two potential writers in the podcast here, right? Um, Christina and Brian, I think. Aren't you guys? I I don't know about you, Michelle, but maybe I'm the only one who's not who's not even tempted to be a writer. Yeah. But one thing I know that they always say about writing, at least I thought they always say, is that, that similes are really helpful and colorful similes are really add a lot to the book. And so when I was going through, I was so impressed with Kings that I wrote, I wrote a bunch of them down. So just turn me off and shut me off. Put me on mute when we're done. <laughs> but I think, oh, we talked about the first one. We talked about this last week. When we talked, this is not exactly written in simile style, but when Larry was walking through Central Park with Rita and he talks about the whisper of her pants. I thought that was very descriptive. Um, and then when Stu is, when Stu is escaping from the, I want to call it hospital, but the, uh, when he was in lockdown in that facility, let's maybe just call it that. He's talked about, he heard a sound like wind through the October corn husks. I thought that was interesting. And then when the coroner, here's one to kind of draw back on your memory. When the coroner shows up at the gas station when Campion first crashes into those fuel pumps and, you know, sets everybody in fire and spreads the disease, the, uh, when he was describing the uh, coroner, he said that he was strutting around like a peacock with his first heart on. I thought that was pretty descriptive. <laughs> Let's see. And one, I don't know the context of this, but I just jotted it down when he said he had a hand like driftwood. And I thought 
boy, that's really descriptive. Very, it's like what six words. You can just picture this old person's frail hand, you know, that looks like a piece of driftwood. Um, later on, Larry says, or Larry woke up with a hangover in a mouth that tasted as if a baby dragon had used it for a potty chair. There's uh, one that's a little bit more dramatic. Larry's mother looked up at him with an eye like a hog in a slaughtering pen. And that's when, if you remember when Larry's mother was on the kitchen floor and when she was dying on the kitchen floor and she looked at, she looked up at him and it was described like an eye, like a hog in a slaughtering pen. I thought that was pretty descriptive. Oh, this wasn't actually a simile, but it was just a note that I took down. They were going through these vignettes around the chapters in the 30s. I forget exactly where it was, but everybody was doing all these short little vignettes about people dying. I think he was trying to get that point across. Oh, and he was talking about the one where this kid, um, Bradenton, was uh, dying in, in his bed, that he was delirious and hallucinating. Remember that then Russell Fry, who we know is flagged, shows up and steals the keys to his Buick. Anyway, that the this is a different note, but if you ever want a good description of an LSD trip, you can read through this, the way he describes what's going on in this. Um, he describes the hallucinations and the delirium that uh, um, this kid, I think it's kid, it's like kid's short for something else, Christopher or something. Bradenton, and the way he describes what he's going through is pretty descriptive. You don't find too many people that describe LSG trips pretty very well, and this one this one does. So when he was lying there dying, he talks about bitter cramps and bitter cramps whipped through him, like the gray like greyhounds fighting on the run. And I thought that was kind of interesting too. So you can see this guy running and getting uh, bitten by a bunch of greyhounds, and that's kind of the way his cramps felt. So anyway, those are a few of those things that uh, that I caught. No, that's amazing. And we're going to have to stop here for a second to save. But I also wanted to say, you bring that up. I know a couple of people have talked about one of the things King uses a lot. And it just strikes home is when they're clearing the bodies out of Boulder and the guy in charge keeps ter- telling the burial committee to think of the bodies as cordwood. Mm-hmm. And they even describe how the bodies sound when they're putting them into the burial pit. And it, it's ooh, really gets you. It's very effective writing. Moving on to talk about our Vegas group. The other group of survivors across the country are drawn to Randall Flagg, known as the dark man, the hard case, the tall man, the walk-in dude. Although technically an agent of chaos, Flagg attracts people who like order and stability, even if it comes at the cost of fascism. It's not just evil ones like him who are receptive to Flagg's summons. Mother Abigail calls them the weak ones, the lonely ones, those who have left God out of their hearts. And we also hear those who are looking for power, retribution, a chance, like Lloyd, who's never been given a chance from anyone before. Like any other despotic ruler, Flag rewards his followers with creature comforts while using cruel measures, such as crucifixion, to punish those who violate his laws. His group is able to quickly reorganize their society, restore power to Vegas, and rebuild the city. They have many technical professionals migrating there, and they are, quote-unquote, hard workers. They have a stronger but harsher structure to that of the free zone. Throughout this, we also get the background on Trash Can Man as he is journeying through the desert trying to make his way to Flag. We hear about the things he has been through and his encounters with the kid. Uh, There are some pretty awful sections. I mean, first we just meet them and find out how he's starting to control him. But eventually the kid rapes and abuses him before Flag is able to send his wolves 
to finish the kid off and Trash is able to finish his journey over to Vegas. So I guess first thoughts about Flag um, and then we can get into the kid. I'll probably be one of Trash Can's few defenders here on the podcast. I don't think so. I don't think so. (laughs) Good, good, good. I like that kid. I mean, as I got, when we got his background, then I had a whole different opinion of him than yeah, certainly from the 2020 series. Christine, I think uh, Stephen King's a little heavy-handed here with Vegas and and Flag, just by it's very abundant, his concern about technology. The fact that all of the technical people that are necessary, that subject matter experts, if you will, to turn the power back on so quickly and set up other things versus the free society who's struggling and using novice individuals to turn on power, all those subject matter experts went to Vegas. So if you ever need a, what's Stephen King going to write about in his career, <laughs> you can just kind of look at that and how it's um, how he doesn't feel that technology is great. And he's concerned about technology as it's advancing, even back in 40 years ago, um, whatever that math is right now, and, and being concerned about the technological advances that he was seeing then versus what we get to see now and how much faster everything is happening. Um, I think it was really, really telling for him that he tipped his hand so heavy-handedly right away. You mean against the technology or in favor of the technology? Uh, against the technology. Against he's it. not a fan. He's concerned about technology advancement in general, um, specifically with his book, Cell, which is about cell phones. Um, so yeah, just it's just the fact that all those individuals made it over to Vegas in the guise of being orderly and having restoring order and some sort of general gist of order in forms of chaos. Um, it's just kind of telling. Well, I agree. And I have to say, this is really tough because I do prefer that depiction where it's not just evil people or flat out debauchery. Those who wind up in Vegas, this 2020 version, I do not like what they did with that. It's a lot more gray. They talk about how the people in Vegas aren't so bad and they just want structure and power, someone to lead them a sense of rebuilding. Um, I don't think it would necessarily be all the technological people, but the fact that they aren't so different from the Boulder free zone, I, I like what King's doing with that. It's still not totally figured out though it's still a little confusing I think he does a much better job with Flag himself who I think is written as a phenomenally descriptive weird but well understood evil ruler Uh, the fact that he is charming and kind of funny and kind of strange um, while also being terrifying he feels very well thought out to me taking Brian's point about the technology being bad, there's kind of a glitch in that in that if you, well, first, let me say on on the reinforcing side, I mean, if you look at this book as a lot of, and I don't know if King does this in any of his other books, but just man's inclination to sort of destroy himself. And um, I'm not sure if it comes up in other books, but that's kind of what a lot of horror and, you know, apocalyptic type books are about, how man ends up destroying himself. And I don't know if this is a generational thing, but, you know, it seems like now, you know, the the stories are about the apocalypse is more dystopian. And then it seems like back in sort of, let me just call it my day, the, the apocalypse was more Big Brother. So if you look at books like 1984, Fahrenheit 451, the whole thing was like, we're going to have Big Brother. We're watching over our shoulder all the time. 
And now the books that have come out lately are more sort of dystopian in nature where it's all anarchy. It's the opposite of Big Brother in a way. So, you know, what lines up with what Brian was saying is that, you know, technology run amok is kind of going to destroy society. But on the other side, if you guys remember way back to when Stu and Glenn, it stuck in my head when Stu and Glenn were having caviar and beer together at Stu's place. So Glenn is pontificating about the society that is going to win this ultimately is going to be the society that is most technologically advanced in the sense that they're going to be able to get their lights turned on. They're going to be able to get all this stuff done. They're going to develop weaponry. You know, they're going to, he said, you don't have to make, you don't have to reinvent the nuclear bomb. You just go collect it, you know, and figure out what to do with it. So when Glenn was kind of foreshadowing all this with Stu, he was sort of saying the opposite of what, what Brian is saying and what, what's sort of the bigger underlying issue that King has. So King's got, seems like a little conflict, unless he's saying he's, this is Bateman saying all this and that he doesn't agree with it. But there was kind of a conflict between what Bateman was saying and then what, what Brian, I think, correctly described King as, as sort of thinking in the book. Well, I think the way you reconcile that is the people in Vegas, it was more structured, more orderly. They did have kind of a a plan under this this fascist ruler. They were starting up the airstrip and they were going to um, eventually attack Boulder. But what Jay and I talked about that I think they actually did a good job with this part in the 2020 is nobody really fully accounts for Trash Can Man. And even when Flag thinks he has him on his side and knows what he's going to do, Trash is almost an agent of chaos. The way that he comes into the picture and winds up bringing the nuke in and everything that happens there, I don't think anybody could have really seen that coming or control it. I, I find it very interesting what, what ends up happening with that. So you're saying that the trash can man is kind of the fly in the ointment and kind of much in the way that Tom was a fly in the ointment of um, Flags. Yes. Two unpredictable characters yeah uh, things on either side yeah exactly well are we dying to talk about trash can man you guys uh let's do it i know i thought i was going to be one of the few that felt that saw him as a sympathetic character but if you go back to his upbringing and how he was abused and belittled and all that stuff and you know you don't know of fire that he might have had some psychosis you guys would be better at this than me but he, there could be some underlying psychosis there but man he was sure beat up when he was young and to the point where almost, I'm not going to say it did, but it almost brought a tear to my eye when you read the section, when he finally gets to Vegas or Chibola or whatever he calls it, that one of the guys, I think it's the cook, who um, welcomes him and he extends his hand to him and he says to shake hands with him. And Trash goes, or he thinks that he goes, this is the first time anybody has offered to shake hands with me. So here's this guy that's that old. And he said, the only guy who's ever offered to shake hands with me, any group of people who's ever accepted me. It kind of makes sense that he's going to fall in with those guys. And I kind of think that Harold, my, my other person that I defend, was kind of also in that situation. Nobody accepted him. Everybody beat him up. And then Flag sort of reaches out to him and says, you can be part of our team. He's like, well, I thought that was a good idea. you know. So anyway, on, Chascan, on Trashcan, I, I found him to be very sympathetic in that one line about the first time anybody ever offered to shake my hand. It's kind of a sad thing, you know, that for somebody to grow up with that. He's very sad. And they do describe in the books, there's so much there we never get in the adaptations that he is schizophrenic. 
there's this very not good home life going on. He is then sent off to an institution where he receives ECT, electroshock treatments. And the mother says when he comes back, he is not the same person anymore. So there were already problems, but he's got a lot more now. And he's a pyromaniac and um, he's bullied and belittled. And he just, there's not many opportunities for trash to really do different. I don't think it's a shame with, with Harold. You do see these chances where I could be someone different. I could try something different. Whereas you, you feel like trash just has no shot uh, from the very beginning. It's, it's very sad. Something that I think King does better than anything else is his ability to identify with and then portray life and his experiences um, throughout the lens of children. He's done it in a lot of his stories and he puts it in words as if he is still a child and taking in those experiences from that age, from that um, cognitive and mental place that they're at. And then on top of that, follow it through um, to show the effects that it has, the impact that those events have when they happen in childhood on who you become as an adult and how it motivates the things that you do. I think he's really great at that. Oh, and I'm so glad you bring that up, too, because even down to the way Trash interprets the world and the things he thinks are normal, when the kid, who we'll get into further in a minute, first starts to sexually abuse him, Trash is actually relieved. And you're hearing inside his point of view that uh, I think he says something like he put my hand on the kind of gun I could understand. Um, If all he wants to do is rape me, I've been raped before. Um, He flat out tells us that. And I know what that's like and I can deal with it, which is just a horrible thing to have this character saying, Mm -hmm. oh, the rape wouldn't be so bad uh, because it's his unpredictability. The fact that he could shoot him, the fact that he's forcing him to drink all this alcohol, drive his car so crazy. Trash doesn't know what to do. He's already so unstable and has no sense of safety and order in his own life that a figure like the kid is just terrifying to him. Um, So we understand immediately when the kid comes on the scene how crazy that is. But Michelle, some of those passages are even written, yeah, as though he's regressed to a much younger age. And you realize that that's probably due to all the trauma he's encountered. Yeah. And we know we get stuck in those uh, when people experience trauma. Sometimes they don't ever grow past that age at which the, the trauma took place. And he just encapsulate, encapsulates that so well for someone, you know, King is a grown man now. So to be able to remember and then explain, express those feelings through his writing is incredible. So in all the books I've read, the TV shows I've watched, the movies I've seen, I don't think there is a character that I have had my heart broken for as much as Trashcan. Once you learn their backstory, because all characters are usually then you you start a snap uh, a snapshot in time and then you figure out who they are or you see them grow. Um, but with Trash, once you get his backstory, you're just like, good God, could this guy have any more happen to him in his life, and yet still kind of come out functioning and kind of okay. You know, obviously he's, all of the trauma has affected him in in ways that you guys have all been talking about, but he's still alive. He hasn't like decided to end it all or just completely, completely break. He still has some function left and is looking for just that person that is going to be nice to him, that treats him as a human, is treats him as another person versus being used. So you can kind of see that once 
you know, even if you, I, I think that if you landed in Boulder and someone came and just wanted to shake his hand, and he had that same interaction in Boulder, he probably would have been a little bit different. But that's why I think he's so enamored to, to Vegas initially is that he's just, he's surrounded by somebody that, or by a person that's just wants to treat him as a human, as a person. Rereading or going back through the book again for this, um, my heart just literally broke for for trash. And it's just like, good God, could this guy, can he have any more bad stuff go on in his life? And it just, you're just, you're kind of rooting for him, honestly, just to pull through and, and make sure that he has something good out of the end of all of this, mm -hmm. all the bad stuff that he's dealt with. Yeah, exactly. And that that's the way I felt towards him also. And it kind of makes him a whole different character than usually you get in the, well, I didn't see the first TV series, but certainly from the TV series where they make him to be this just crazy, deformed, you know, wild man kind of person, you kind of understand how he got there. You know, another interesting, before we leave Trash Can, did you guys ever wonder or think about why, like we've got, we hear the dreams from the people who end up in, let's call them the bolder people, where they see both sides, you know, they see you know, flag, and they kind of get terrified by that part. And we see the the good part, you know, the mother Abigail and all that. We get, they kind of see both sides of the dream, but we don't know what the dreams are like from the people that end up in Vegas. What's funny, like, so what are those people, when they see, when they see mother Abigail in their dreams, do they think that, do they also see this equal, well, here's a good person, here's a bad person. I'm going to go over here where this bad person is, you know, even though he's offering me money or hearing or whatever he's the offer he's making. But Trash Can actually gives us an insight to that. There's one portion that I thought, oh, this is what I've been wanting, but I'll kind of read a little bit of it, but you know, I don't want to read a whole lot of it. But there's a couple of paragraphs in there where he actually describes how Mother Abigail showed up to him in his dreams. And he says, but long before the dream ended, he was paralyzed with fear as if it wasn't an old woman at all that he was peeking at, but it's some secret, some barely concealed light that seemed ready to break out all around her, to play over her with a fiery brilliance that would make the flaming oil tanks of Gary seem like so many candles in the wind, a light so bright that it would chalk his eyes to cinders. He goes on a little bit more. In an old cracked but strong voice, she would cry out, weasels in the corn, weasels in the corn, and he would feel the change in himself and will look down to see that he had become a weasel, a furry, brownish, black, slinking thing, his nose growing long and sharp, his eyes melted down to beady black points, his fingers turned into claws. He was a weasel, a cowardly nocturnal thing preying on the weak and the small. And then he would begin to scream. So it's interesting when you see how, let's call them the Vegas people, how um, Abigail manifests themselves herself and their dreams. So you can see maybe why they're as afraid of Abigail as, as the uh, bolder people are afraid of flag. Mm -hmm. So I, I think he gave us some insight on sort of what it's like. Yeah. And I think you get a little insight into how charming and um, charismatic flag can be through Lloyd's encounter with him. And it's, it's not dreams. It's him actually mm -hmm. meeting him in the prison cell, but you can see why he feels he owes everything and is indebted to flag and has a sense of loyalty to him that I think is really great. I struggle coming back to the, the thing you were talking about with trash that 
you do feel so bad for him and you, you do wonder if things would have gone differently based on his introduction to Vegas, how they're treating him. Uh, he's a person for the first time. He feels like he belongs. I think he even says in there, it's a chance to be Donald Merwin Elbert again. Uh, and yet when he has the, the PTSD flashback scene later on at the airfield, um, they haven't done anything. It's his own history and his own just he cannot control this pyromania that leads him to blowing everything up there. And uh, you wonder if, if this agent of chaos, he's just so broken, can he be helped really? Or is he always inevitably going to wind up at that point? You know, one last thing I, I wanted us to bring up in talking about him is his stuff with the kid. And I do think that was a really big influence. I'm so sad that it didn't wind up in either adaptation. I get it. And I get that they feel it's a side plot you know enough about him, you don't need it. And also, how do you do the kid on screen? So if you haven't read the extended version, here's just a brief description that the real name and age of the kid is not known, but he claims to be from Shreveport, Louisiana. He is about 5'3 and artificially boosts his height by means of a tall hairdo and high-heeled cowboy boots. He drives a heavily customized 1932 Ford Deuce Coupe recklessly, often while casually drinking beer or whiskey. And after the superflu outbreak, he encounters trash, quickly revealing himself to be a quick-tempered and violent sociopath. During their time traveling, the kid endangers Trash's life with reckless driving, threatening him with bodily harm, forcing him to drink alcohol at gunpoint, threatening him with death on repeated occasions, and finally raping him. Another big revelation lies in the fact that the kid brags about his intentions to feign his way into Flag's good graces and then overthrow him. To trash, this is intolerable blasphemy. So that's another big point is trash just sort of immediately recognizes this guy is bad news because he thinks he's going to take over Flag. And of course, for trash, my life for you. You can't say that about Flag, right? Mm. But these, these scenes, uh, especially the sexual assaults, are pretty graphic and difficult with the kid. There are some scenes that I really like that we take out, such as later on when they try to pass the Eisenhower Tunnel and they can't, and the wolves wind up coming to get the kid. Um, any thoughts on the kid? Do you miss him being in the adaptations? What do you think he brings to this? One of the only other characters who represented sort of inherent evil besides Flag. I think all the other characters that end up in Vegas, whether it's, well, maybe not quite, in Ve didn't quite make it to Vegas, but Harold or Nadine or Trashcan, they all kind of have a mix of, you know, they're not pure, but sort of different influences when they were younger and might've come across as, might've ended up as different people. So it seems like, I mean, he's one of the few that's just, he's just a pure jerk, you know, an evil person for the sake of being evil. I always kind of envisioned him from the description being uh, the evil version of Elvis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, just just pure, unadulterated evil. And like you're saying, Christina, yet you kind of get why once you once you read through the section of the book and you kind of think about not only just the words you've read and what type of human would have to do that to another person um, or even just think that that's normal and OK. And then you envision yourself in like a writer's room for a TV show. And you struggle with the question of how do you bring this to TV <laughs> to have the same point, uh, make it past all the censors and not have it like a watered down version. So then it's like, okay, well, you can't 
really do all of that. So then you're like, okay, well, I think today you probably could on a different platform, like on a Netflix or an HBO, something where you have a little bit more leeway with instead of CBS. But once you take that away, then you look at trash and you're like, well, part of his development and why you feel the way you do for him is because of what happens to him from the kid. And then you're like, well, okay, you can't really do that or explain that in a, in a TV setting. So you, then you do just reduce trash to this guy that's just pure chaos and just wants to see the world burn. And you do a major disservice to the, to the character and you get what we've seen in the TV adaption. So like you said, Christina, I get it, but you are losing a major, major, while completely disturbing and hard to read, you're missing a major section of the story that is actually kind of needed to, to get to the point that you need to get to by the end of this section and by the end of the book with trash. So Brian, do you think that the, the sexual assault is a necessary part? Is that what you're saying? Cause it seems like you could, because I mean, like the time he said, you got 15 minutes to push this van over the, I mean, he's, he's terrified by flag even before you get to the sexual. Yes. Yeah. Sure. So I mean, like the 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 way through the Eisenhower Tower or the tunnel, the the pushing the the van over, you know, you could you could bring some of those things to life in TV fairly easily, and you could have just the mean character on screen. But I don't think you can go to the extremes that you need to to really feel empathy for for trash like we do on TV, like you can in the book. I also think I, you risk the kid being a caricature, trying to see him yeah. the way King's describing him on screen. Yeah, you, you can't really do it justice. No, I'm not saying that um, I haven't finished my books. I haven't gone through all the like, hey, what do you need to do to actually get somebody to feel um, sympathy for a character? So I don't know if it's 100% needed, but I do, or the, the sexual assault was needed, like you were asking, Kurt. But I do think that you need something from an extreme perspective to realize just how depraved the kid is to compliment trash is walking in and having someone shake his hand and how that means to him when he gets to Vegas. No. You know, you don't really have that, that polar oppositeness to show how trash is developed as a character in the book without something as extreme as what we read through. No, I think you're right, Brian. I don't think that without the kid, you have the context to even make trash man the same character in the show as he is in the book. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I was just saying that is the sexual assault scene necessary because I was feeling pretty bad for Trash Can even without that, you know, until we got to that part. Just the way he was treated in the car, he was scared to death. And and the funny thing is that you saw Trash Can in a whole different light. You know, you saw him being the victim rather than sort of the perpetrator of bad things, blowing up oil tanks and all that. We have covered a lot more here. We've gotten up to the point of, I think next time we, we talk a lot more about Vegas, what's going on there, what the spies are doing over there. Um, and then we get to some of our real culminating action in both areas. But before we go to our dream ratings and most valuable stands, do we have other thoughts about this book two on the border? I feel it's a fairly decent act two. Obviously in act one, you, you're introduced to most of the characters. Act two kind of moves the chess pieces around to get to where you need to for your final act in the, in the climax of the story. Um, so I think it was fairly decent. Like I said earlier, I personally would not have the meeting notes section of the book. Um, I think it could have been done differently. But yeah, I think it's a fairly good middle section and sets up everything for what we're going to get to next time. 
We're going to take it to our rating as a refresher. Last time, Brian gave it an 8-9, Kirk and Michelle a 9-5, and me a 9-6. So for book two, Brian, what do you give it? So like I said, I, I like that the, the moving the chess pieces to get you into a place where you need to be for the final act. I do like a lot of the development that we learned about the characters and the um, just overall learning about everybody, the story progression we've gotten so far. But like I said earlier, the the diary reading and the, the meeting notes just felt kind of down for me. So while I would love to give it much higher than this. And I know I'm probably saving myself for, for act three and, and a whole wide of range of numbers that I said, I'm probably going to go with a, a 9.1. Everything else brought it up, but the meeting note section just really kind of brought me back down to where uh, so on gave, par. You gave this one a higher rating than you did last time? Yeah, yeah, just slightly, just slightly. Mainly because I like I like character development. I like learning and seeing characters grow. And so you're not just as stagnant as you are in the initial one, because that's kind of what you're doing with the book. You're trying to, to see how characters react to environments and situations and stuff like that. So, Michelle, how about you? I I feel bad saying this now that you gave it over nine. I would, I don't know, can we do points like 8.8? 8? Of course. And a lot of people would rate book two lower, so don't feel bad. And it does, it feels not fair because it's hard to compare um, one and three when you have so much action with this part. And I don't want to say it got a lower rating just because there's not action. But same as we've been talking about, same as Brian, the lull, the, the choice to use Franny's diary as a perspective during a time when there's so many different characters going through so many different things and evolving and changing um, to have chosen that perspective. And how do I say this? It seemed not stereotypical, but it, it was very one-sided. Here's the good. Here's the evil. We're, we're really separating now. I don't think he went as deep as he could have. And like what, what Kirk said, there's a lack of understanding and explanation from the people in Vegas and what they're seeing and how maybe their perspective of Abigail versus Flag was different. Depending on who you are, Flag might look like the hero and Abigail looks scary. And we didn't get to see any of that. And I do love character development, too. I think there were too many characters that remained the same, like, like Stu. There weren't enough characters at that point to change as much as I would have liked to see them change, considering they are going living through the end of the world and reestablishing a new one. Overall, still, still great. King is awesome. Those were just the areas that it was lacking for me. Great. How about you, Kirk? Well, I actually dropped a few points from book one. I really liked book one, but I thought through it. My gut feel was not to drop it too many points. And so I actually did a good versus bad. So on the good side of this book, I've got, we meet Tom and we see the adventures of Tom and Nick. We meet Nadine and Joe. We see the good, the kind side of Nadine, if you will. And also we see Larry grow. This is the chapter where he goes and sort of breaks through the other side when he's kind to Joe and he and he realizes like oh wait this is you know this is the direction I want to go in or that I'm going to go in so we see him move along his little arc um, we learn a lot more about Abigail you know how she was discriminated against as a child and what her upbringing was Kojak comes back guys we miss Kojak we forgot to say oh, that's a good thing we miss Kojak also sort of the Nadine and Harold plot begins to unfold it kind of gets developed and then what I called the purloined diary story unfolds. I thought that was we're kind of like these 
little mysteries that sort of unfold. And also, unless I got this right, at the very end of book two, doesn't we find out that Franny's baby lives? Thought that wasn't until book three, but I could be wrong. Yeah, you know what? We can maybe check that for next time because I got that towards the end of book two, but we'll double check it and see. But then on the bad side, I definitely agree that we have this sort of the whole idea of like finding out about these meetings, you know, through diary form was bad. Um, and just, you know, listening to about the meetings themselves. And also it was a little bit slow going through that whole section on, on Mother Abigail's um, religiosity, if that's the word, where there was a whole, there was many, many pages of, you know, learning about her re- religiosity and sort of what it comes from and where, what it meant to her. Um, but it just seemed like it was like, well, I'm going to throw in these pages and then they didn't go anywhere with it. So that was kind of a drag. Anyway, so I came down from a 9.5 last time to a 9.3. That's still good. I mean, but it did fall off a couple of points. I agree with everything you guys said. I thought there were some really strong points in here. The Nick and Tom journey, some of my favorite stuff on um, the background on trash can and the kid was extremely interesting. I do like some of the rebuilding society, though I think it could have been handled a lot better. There are some weird draggy points. The whole part with Mark and Perry, and while incredibly interesting for the appendicitis thing, doesn't quite fit right into there. And there's a couple of sections like that and characters you don't really go back to later. That's a little bizarre. I love the Mother Abigail background on her, her humanity. But yeah, some of the other sections are a little weird and drifty. So I think I'm going to go down to a nine. Still good, but I think it's my least favorite book section of the three out of one, two, and three. Now we'll go to our last, who took the most valuable stand. As a reminder, last Mm -hmm. time, Kirk and myself said Larry, Michelle said Flag, and Brian said Stu. So Brian, go ahead and start us off. Who took MVS for this time? Refresh my memory. When we're talking about most valuable stand or person, kind of what's the criteria? Are we talking about the person that had the most character development? Are we talking about the person that had the most influence on another character? Are we talking about just the person that stood out to you the most in this section? Kind of what's the criteria? Because I'm quite honestly, I'm debating between a couple of people and depending yeah. on your answers is going to mm-hmm. help me what's the right one. And if it's just like whoever you like, Brian, like, okay, well, that's okay. Let me flip a coin. No, it's a good question. I would say it's, it's definitely not who you liked the most or who is the best character um, who had the most influence on the story, whether that is through an amazing character development and arc or because they influenced other people, you know, who, who pushed things forward the most this time around. So I guess I'll continue with my controversy, this podcast. And um, I'm actually going to say the kid, tell you the truth. Like I was saying earlier, I don't think you get to understand Trash's character without the kid. And then if you don't have the kid, Trash just becomes a stereotypical trope. Chaos being for for being chaos. No other reason than that. And then just that ripple effect that we saw here and that we're going to see in the next book really comes down to the kid and his influence on Trash Camp. I'm glad that Brian asked for specification, but I still don't know if I could pick one because like, there's so many characters and they're all there for such different purposes. And I'm tempted to pick a character just because I like him the most. (laughs) I don't know if that's okay, but I would pick Tom. Tom is so integral to both the theme and the action. I love, I didn't talk about it when we were talking about Nick and Tom, but for as good as King is at writing, 
sometimes when he says the least, the message is the strongest. I like what he did with Nick and Tom and the fact that it exemplifies how little you need to have a relationship with a person. The fact that he didn't even know Nick's name. It's not about the ideas that you share or having things in common. It's just what your soul is made of when you have a relationship with another person. And I thought he did that beautifully the same way he does with Trash Can Man to decide to name him Trash Can Man, to put that label on a person that is viewed that way is incredible. But I, I vote for Tom. I love Tom and I love that it was a character with deficits that we don't get to see be a hero ever in other stories. He's got my vote. I love it. Kirk, mm-hmm. who is your MBS? Okay, I agree. So many choices. Um, first of all, Kojak's always a good choice, but I thought that was a little bit too obvious. He makes his return as loyal, loyal dog. Larry was another kind of possibility for me because in terms of his personal character arc, you know, not so much the influence on the story at this point, but you know, breaking through to the other side, he finally became that nice guy through Joe. He became that nice guy who he's always wanted to be seen as a nice guy, and um, at least in book one. So he moved, you know, he saw some slow, steady improvement in his character. But I ended up, not dissimilar from Brian, but I ended up with Trashcan. The reason why I chose Trashcan is that he finally, we learned, we found him to be sort of a sympathetic character with a very colorful, is maybe the wrong description, but a colorful uh, backstory that helped us understand who he really is and why. I think it's kind of the setup for moving the story forward. I mean, he's going to become major in the next Part, we kind of get a better understanding of him. So um, I'm going to go trash can to also be a contrarian, perhaps. No, I think this is so great because you do sort of really have things splitting in this book between the good versus the evil, the Randall Flagg, Mother Abigail. So you guys, Kirk and Brian, have trash and the kid, undeniably, you know, very influential on that side of things. Michelle, you had Tom and I'm going to go Nick. I do agree that Larry has the best character arc. And actually, I gave it to him for the 2020 series for best overall start to finish character arc development, things that change. Larry is very interesting, but doesn't move the story forward a ton in book two, some subtle ways. But Nick is really the linchpin of King's story on all of this. In fact, we're going to see him beginning to end in this book. We're going to get his full backstory, the journey with Tom. By the end of it, he's going to die in the explosion. Of course, we'll, we'll get little bits of him that I'll love to talk about in three. I just think everything from the way he views the society, it's his decision to send Tom as the spy because he trusts in him so much. And, you know, he'll show you there's things you don't know about Tom, he tells everyone. And he winds up being right. Uh, he's the one to see all that in the first place. Uh, he's the one to figure out the real big things he thinks they need in this society and his death is going to have a, a huge influence. So I love Nick. No, don't love Nick in the 2020 because we hardly see Nick. But everywhere else, I love him. <laughs> That's true. It's such a shame. Yeah, especially since it seemed Henry Zago is a good actor. Uh, he just doesn't get time to do anything. Um, and his death almost holds no weight in that version, which I can't imagine. Nick's death not holding weight. That's crazy. <laughs> There's... Definitely a ton more to get to, but any final thoughts this time around? I'd be really curious after we get through the next cast, if we could talk about holistically what we thought of everything. I know you guys just did the the wrap-up cast for the 2020 show, but yeah, I'd be interested to see kind of what our thoughts are about holistically what is the better 
story. I think I know where we're all going to land, but I think I might also have some shockingly controversial takes on 2020. Yeah, you mean as far as if we pick book 94 or 2020? Yeah, around kind of what's better. Because I, I apologize for not being able to call in um, to, to say this at the end of the for the, the wrap-up cast for 2020, but I've been also kind of saving it for, for next week. I think 2020 is better than we think it is. So. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on that. Definitely <laughs> next time we're going to only spend the first half talking about plot points and wrapping up what the story tells us there. We don't really have new characters to meet that time around. So we're just going to wrap up storyline, but then we will go to overall thoughts. What version do we like the best? Um, there's some writing things and references we didn't get a chance to talk about here. So that should be a lot of fun. We have those things to dive into next time. Yeah. And also, Brian, it'll be interesting to see. I'm going to challenge you to separate the fact that you read the book before you saw 2020, because, I mean, you have a lot of background that you sort of bring into 2020, where if you were new to 2020, then I think a lot of what Christina has been complaining about, if you will, that, you know, wait, we didn't, this character didn't get developed at all. And, and you know, I think that you will, you'd lose some of that. But if you have read the book already, then it's sort of, it's sort of, you know, you understand where these characters are coming from. Because I know on the podcast when Christina was saying like, well, we didn't know about such and such and how come he did it? Yeah, how come he took this action? I'm like, yeah, we did. But then I realized, oh, wait, we learned that from the book, not from the, from the TV series. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see. We'll challenge you. We'll challenge you, Brian. It's almost like you're in my head, Kurt. It's all <laughs> foreshadowing. We've sort of figured that out a long time ago. We had the same, <laughs> we had the same careers, the same schooling, the same everything. Yep. And we both live yep. in California. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next time. It's going to be great. Uh, this has been really amazing. I'm looking at next time. Yeah, so we, we really have about the, the spies, about the stand that takes place and, and ultimately what happens in Vegas. And that after stuff that I can't wait to talk about that we never get enough of, of the Stu and Tom journey. It's finally going to be a chance to talk about that here. So if you're thinking on that, we will get to it. And a lot of other stuff about King's writing in general. But thank you yet again to all of you for joining us. This has been a great conversation about this book that I love we're having. My pleasure. Looking yes, forward to that. Man, it's, fun. it's fun to get a lot more out of the books this way. It's like I didn't know all this stuff or think through all this stuff, you know, just when I read it or even when I saw the TV show. But it's fun to sort of dig into more depth. Well, until next time, I'll see you guys then. And for all of you listeners, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash CKC Podcast. This round is on me.